Welcome to Made in Science, the official podcast of the University of Stuttgart. Today, we welcome Masha Tahiran. She is space software engineer and member of the European Stratospheric Balloon Observatory design study team at our university. But most of all, she is a recent recipient of the Emilia Earhart Fellowship in Aerospace Engineering and Space Sciences. Of course, we want to talk with you about that prize and what it means to you. But first, a very warm welcome, Masha. Thank you so much and thank you for having me here. Masha, in your work as a space systems engineer, um, what exactly uh, did the career path that you took up mean for you when you decided to go that way? Uh, before that, as a before deciding to go toward aerospace and specifically, particularly from the beginning, space, uh, I was a teenager and my preference was to study literature or become a writer. Or to become a writer. Um, now, that is really something very, very different, going from uh, literature that uh, can be uh, focused very much on Earth all the way up to space, uh, what is what you are doing now. Uh, the Balloon Observatory here in Stuttgart, how special is it in your, uh, in your evaluation, in your mind? It's a meaningful project, uh, especially for astronomical scientists, those that look for you know, uh, having uh, access to data for their research. This is something that this is a project that's uh, hoping to open up more opportunities for astronomical groups to uh, either launch their instruments or you know, um, access the data or uh, basically work in a bigger scope that they cannot uh, by themselves, by the resources that they have, uh, do without some support. So our main objective was to basically democratize that space, provide more opportunities for these research groups and uh, give them you know, uh, a better access, cheaper and usually faster. You just mentioned cheaper. Um, so I was wondering, in how far does the balloon benefit uh, this uh, outcome more than non-balloon uh, observatories? What it brings, what balloon observatories usually bring is a faster time to launch, which means that you also can test your technologies faster. Uh, usually what we, the problem we have, so the alternative is usually the space. Uh, the observations that can be done on balloons also can be done on space. And, uh, but we have to always consider the time scale. Uh, when we talk, for example, about James Webb, this is a project that, uh, takes 20 years to develop, meaning that, you know, if you have an instrument that you want to work with, it takes 20 years. You might be as well retired after that when you get the data. Uh, so what balloons bring, uh, is, access that is faster. So you have that data faster, usually cheaper, uh, considerably cheaper, and with the, almost the same quality, uh, almost the same access to uh, parts of the spectrum that we don't have access from the ground. I understand. 
there are researchers from several countries involved in this particular project, so there is a high degree of internationalization. When did you become aware of this uh, aspect of internationalization as being an important part of your work? In general, in the space industry, uh, from the beginning, so from uh, when you basically enter in a I started in Iran, so uh, you would not really notice that in Iran. It wasn't also, uh, there was not much going on in terms of space activities at the time. But uh, when I moved to Europe, I was 21 years old. And uh, I think from the beginning, you notice it in different projects that you, you know uh, start working with in different programs, you see uh People from more than one country is being involved. Uh, it might be that the scope still is Europe, North America mainly. Uh, but still, in this scope, uh, there is a high degree of internationalization that you notice from the beginning. For me, it was probably the highest point of it in the beginning was when I uh, participated in the uh, International Space University program. That's where I actually you know, met a lot of people from different institutions, uh, either as in students or as lecturers, uh, that was probably the highest point. And how does this relate, actually, to the number of women in science uh, that you work with? In your home country, Iran, many women study in the field of engineering. Why do you think that is the case? There, There is a lot of historical and social and political context to it. So uh, it's not that, you know, we uh, by culture see women as as engineers. Probably it's uh, the other way around, that they're not seen uh, culturally as, you know, uh, engineers or, you know, working in such fields or even, you know, a huge part of the, you know, work uh, environment normally. But... Given that you no know, uh, politics actually affects how <laughs> females behave, uh, there is right now you know probably more knowledge about the situation of women in Iran. Uh, the, the movement of you know women in Iran actually started long ago, and part of it was you know to stay against the cultural norms, to resist against the cultural norms, and that's why going to engineering was basically breaking that barrier uh, from. From the bottom, not from the up. It wasn't that. No, the, there was uh, positive discrimination to let women study engineering, or that they were so much welcome uh, or supported by the government. But this was partly the resistance from the bottom. Have you yourself uh, decided to help female students and uh, female colleagues uh, to get ahead in their work? Uh, can you can you influence that at all? Probably I have tried, <laughs> I would say. Uh, it's What you can do is still limited uh, as long as you don't have that authority to, you know, to decide or to put schemes in place to support women. Uh, but I think our personal efforts are still there. You, know, you, see, you see a student that needs some guidance, some mentoring. I mean, I'm not there yet to be, you know, the, the best mentor, but uh, from the, you know, limited experience, limited success that I've had, I usually try to also guide, you know, students that I, that I see that are starting 
or those that are not, um, they don't uh, necessarily think that this would be a path that they could succeed in. They have doubts. They come to you. Yeah. So shall I do this? No. What is, what does it take to actually uh, go in this path? And can I be successful uh, in this background? Yes. I try to give them that uh, guidance that yes, there is not that limitation that if you are a female or if you're a woman in Iran, you cannot actually enter this field. And what about Stuttgart, the very situation that you experienced since also since you came here? Would be the same. I think the, the, the problems in Stuttgart are different uh, or uh, the, the background is different. So uh, I think uh, there would be a lot of explicit pressure in Iran to form you as a woman to you know, imply that this is not your uh, space. This is not something that you can enter. And that's very explicit. In Stuttgart, uh, I've been here for four years, so uh, I can't really say that, no, that I've been here for 20 years and I can analyze uh, what's going on. But in general, I've noticed that uh, even though there's not that much explicit barriers to you know, getting into engineering or to aerospace engineering or space industry, uh, I see less women who are willing to, to get into it. Uh, so I think there might be implicit factors. And I usually try to, if, you know, if we have discussions in the workplace, uh, in the university, bring it up that why is that? Usually, you know, talking to my German colleagues because they probably understand their society way better than me. But I think it's important to also understand when we're in Germany and talking about female participation, We have to look more into implicit factors that affect uh, females to not choose to uh, get into STEM, get into engineering or aerospace. So how does it feel for you then uh, if you are in a room uh, where the majority are male colleagues? Um, how does it feel to be a minority in your work? Sometimes hard. Sometimes, but uh, it's partly also, uh, I think, uh, our own imagination how I see myself as minority. Do I see myself as minority? Do they see myself as minority here in the room? Uh, I think partly we also notice it as you know, uh, women. Uh, we're sensitive on it because you know, we, in different situations uh, over the life, we actually experience as minority what it means. So it might not be that explicitly someone says something, someone uh, that you explicitly see the discrimination, but you have it in your mind, in the background, that this is possible, that I'm still a minority. So I think I, I haven't noticed that much explicit discrimination from the male colleagues. Uh, they're careful most of the time, especially in Germany, they're very careful in you know, how, how they talk to you, how they give you uh, the space to also talk, uh, but partly you're still that minority and you sense it and you have it unconsciously in how you sit in the room. When it comes to your work, you have been extremely successful already. So one of the reasons is you have been working very, very hard uh, for this, as, as it should be. Now, let us also talk about the aspect of good moments in life. Uh, how important are they or have they been in your life so far? 
what is the element of luck uh, that uh, you may have uh, experienced in your uh, career path as well? Yeah, I I don't know if I can uh, call myself extremely successful, but uh, yeah, it's uh, compared to what I've imagined before. I think I'm happy with you know, the path that I uh, have uh, took up to now and what I've experienced. Uh, luck was there always. <laughs> I wouldn't say that you no, know, uh, it doesn't play a role. I usually tell people that it plays uh, normally a an important role. It might be that you know you work hard, you work way harder than the the rest, but you without having that you no know, lucky moments, uh, you probably uh, might not you know get there. Uh, hard work is not necessarily enough uh, at this point in our system. But uh, yeah, I was lucky to actually get that opportunity from the beginning to study in Europe, uh, though I was also unlucky uh, at the time, I think, and I, and I worked also hard for it. For example, I, there were times that my work contracts were canceled due to sanctions on Iran. There were times that uh, actually my the first admission that I got for my master was canceled uh, due to sanctions on Iran. I just received, I was going to get my visa and go to UK. And I received an email saying that because I'm not allowed as an Iranian to uh, enter that campus anymore, uh, they canceled my uh, admission. And, and and working hard, I was probably also naive at the time when this happened. For example, I wrote, I think, several emails to different parts of European Commission mentioning that this is discrimination <laughs> and that they have to fix it, uh, which though I have to say that it actually, uh, they responded to my request, which was funny. I mean, I was 21 and I was in Middle East and I thought that you know, this might be a good idea that I at least you know, stand up for myself. And they basically gave me a different admission that I hadn't applied for. So <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Uh, it could have, you know, just end up in spam somewhere by, you know, European Commission officers. But uh, it's probably luck, you know, who reads your email, who uh, sympathizes with your situation. They shouldn't necessarily, I wasn't a European, they're not, you know, necessarily uh, responsible for what happens to citizens of the rest of the world. But uh, yeah, so it was luck. It was luck that I uh, was supported by uh, Anusha Ansari to uh, go study at International Space University after that, uh, because again, I had not applied. It was luck that I came to Stuttgart because, yeah, I had a friend of a friend actually working here and he introduced me to the team uh, kindly. And it just worked out. So, yeah. There is that aspect, uh, for sure. And I asked about luck. Uh, but it also shows there are some regulations, there are rules, and there is the human factor exactly. uh, involved uh, that you described, uh, just how people uh, then um, behave uh, uh, in certain situations. Uh, and they did, as you just said. Now, the other people uh, in your life who have certainly been very, very helpful are your parents uh, also. So what was their reaction when you told them that you were going uh, for a major in engineering? 
for engineering, they were quite happy. They were quite happy that I moved away from literature <laughs> to engineering, uh, as they thought, not that, no, they, my mom has a PhD in humanities, so not that she had anything against social sciences or humanities studies, but that she thought this would be better for me in terms of career rather than you know, going to literature and having this ambitious to mind that you know, I would become this author, <laughs> well-known one. But yeah, my father was as well uh, very happy. My mom wasn't that much excited about the aerospace part of it. <laughs> uh, as, as I said, it wasn't really popular or uh, something that females uh, would go to. Uh, to me, it was unique. It was something that you know, probably uh, separates you from the crowd. Uh, and my father was really into that part of it. You know, that's something new. That's something uh, modern. Uh, and he was very supportive. On your way, um, you went in your education, I'm sure, and you have talked about some already, obstacles and challenges. Um, what turned out to be much easier than you actually thought. So normally what I thought was that, no, I'm coming from uh, a country that at the time did not have this field. It wasn't necessarily, you know, when you when you are an American, this is part of you know, your country's basically pride that having you no know, uh, all those history of uh, space flight. Uh, so I assume that, you no, know, this would be hard, uh, that everyone is way ahead of me. And that it would take a lot of work to be really, you know, get there, to be part of the community. And that part, I think at the end, I got a lot of support and it wasn't that hard as I expected. You mentioned your interest in literature. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, it's never too late, uh, certainly, to, uh, of course, continue with the reading, uh, but also perhaps to sit down at one day and uh, and write about your experiences uh, as well, uh, combine it perhaps in a fictitious way or uh, as a description of uh, what you uh, have experienced to encourage other uh, female uh, researchers uh, to follow your way uh, as well. Now. Uh, the balloon made me certainly think of Jules Verne's uh, Around the World in, 18, in 80 Days. Um, were you interested in science fiction when you mentioned earlier you read literature? Or was it way beyond that? Uh, what inspired you? In general, way beyond that. Uh, uh, so uh, I definitely started the first, the first actual book. Uh, novel that I read was from Jules Verne. I think I was I was seven that I read uh, the uh, travel to the center of the world, uh, and it was very exciting for me. And it was I thought you know as a seven year old I just got you know was into reading. I had usually normally smaller books, and that was like the first big project for me, and uh, I loved it. I loved it, and I over the years also uh, had my favorite science fiction books. Uh, probably the the one that I uh, love the best is Stanislav Lem, uh, Solaris uh, stays with me forever. Also the, the uh, movie, not only the book, but the movie as well is the one that I love. Uh, 
but my interest in literature did not end with science fiction. And it's always an inspiration, of course, reading uh, whatever genre uh, and literature as well. Talking about the inspiration, um, this brings us directly to the Emilia Earhart Fellowship again. The award is especially dedicated to women in PhD doctoral studies in aerospace engineering and space sciences. And it's given to uh, researchers uh, all over the world uh, for a certain, I think, up to 30 uh, fellowships uh, per year. How does this fellowship motivate you to influence other female students in your area in this particular moment in life to follow in your footsteps? The influence, the, the motivation that it brings is is quite huge to me. So it was actually a big thing in my life. Um, I would say that I applied the year before and I didn't didn't get it. And the second year I was also in a, I was in, at a good place. Uh, I think the before, the, few weeks before the deadline, um, three weeks before the deadline, I had lost my father. And given that I could not go to Iran, uh, I actually just got the news over the phone and that was it. And my father had a big role in all my decisions in life. So I was so-so uh, in, can I still apply? Does it make sense? I'm not really, you know, it's hard because you also have to write uh, you know, about your research. It's a completely different place. I'm not there yet. And... Uh, but my supervisor, uh, Professor Klinkner, uh, supported me and, you know, motivated me to still apply. You know, you have nothing to lose. So, uh, the time that uh, I could not believe that I got the fellowship, uh, it was really, uh, motivating me to continue that, you know, uh, even though maybe I moved to Germany to continue this path and I couldn't basically be with my father uh, for the whole time. And I lost him and you know, uh, everything seemed really upsetting. Also giving hope that maybe it was the right choice. Maybe my father was actually happy you know, that, I, that I left, that I you know, stayed with my uh, ambitions. So uh, it was motivational uh, from that point of view, uh, that perspective, and also maybe then it brings also with itself not only the motivation to work for you know, the women and inspire them, but rather a responsibility to give back. I see it more as a responsibility, as putting you know, something on your shoulders, which is valuable you know, to do also uh, something valuable for the community to uh give back to uh, do your best uh, you know, in, the, in the scope that you can do uh, to bring more fairness, uh, to, to reduce discrimination, explicit or implicit. So in my mind, um, I see uh, in the news when uh, a new mission is going for, uh, for space, uh, there, is a, there are mixed teams these days. Uh, and uh, you have male and female uh, um, researchers uh, on board, um, but the majority is still male. So when will I see that, uh, say, there is a ratio of uh, two or three female researchers and one male uh, going? Uh, when do you see that happening? 
I wouldn't say that would be near future. And I, I, what I want to, I mean, it would be hard to give it dates, let's say, you no, know, in 10 years we're there. Uh, that is uh, probably not really scientific to say, but what I want to uh, emphasize here uh, from my point of view is the fact that we reached here is basically a collective effort. So if we stop putting that extra effort all the time to talk about this, to discuss this, to uh, you know, uh, reduce uh, discrimination internationally around the globe, uh, it wouldn't get better. So when do we see that? Probably when, as long as you know, we put that effort, it's going to be sooner. <laughs> Let's perhaps address this uh, in a even more concrete form. In your mind, what exactly needs to change? Uh, to uh, have more women going into space engineering in the future? One thing that we probably need to see more are uh, female leaders. So, uh, and, I, and that brings me to you know that what has to be changed is definitely giving that opportunity to females. Uh, I think mentoring has a has a significant role to promote the idea that you no, know, this is not a field that you're limited in that you cannot enter. And I think as as long as you see that you no, know, uh, yeah, there are women also working there. Yes, there are women that you no know, actually reach those leadership roles. Uh, you are probably as a little girl more inspired. Uh, and uh, the mindset can change. The mindset. Let's bring it back on Earth and uh, talk about moment seven. As you know, We, uh, at the end of our podcast, have always a couple of very uh, precise questions. And uh, I would like to ask you uh, to answer the next seven questions uh, really as shortly as possible. Moment one. What do you prefer, Spätzle or Maultaschen? Spätzle. Moment two. Is there one thing that you would like to change about the world? Many things. <laughs> Moment three. Do you have a book or a movie or a music recommendation for us? Yes. Nostalgia from Tarkovsky. Moment four. The best advice that you have ever received was? To not give up. <laughs> Moment five. Your favorite place on the campus at the University of Stuttgart is? Near the lake. Uh, At Feingen campus. Moment six. If you could start all over again, what would you do differently? I would hug my father way more. And moment seven. The best thing about Stuttgart is... My house. <laughs> Thank you, Marsha. It's good to know that you live live both on Earth, but also for the future. And uh, every now and then 
uh, get ideas from space also. It has been great talking to you and we wish you all the very best uh, for your future work. And once again, uh, congratulations uh, on the fellowship. Thank you so much. It was uh, a really interesting discussion and uh, thank you for having me again. From all of us, please stay healthy, stay good, stay tuned for our conversations that are always based on what is made in science.